Hi, this is David Flower, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Good morning, Grantham Church. Welcome to worship. I am also not the worship pastor. <laughs> I think folks are after Dave's job. No. Good to see all of you in worship this morning. My name is David Flowers. I'm the senior pastor here at Grantham. If you're visiting with us, welcome. Uh, we are in a new sermon series. We began last week called Christ the Center, How the Gospel Shapes Community. What does it look like to be a Christ-centered church that is faithful to the gospel? How can we be a church that doesn't obsess over boundaries or one that ends up erasing all lines that set us apart as faithful disciples? In this four-part sermon series, we're looking at how Christ is the center of our community when we're pursuing Him together, affirming historic Christian beliefs, and living out our values as Christ followers, as we extend grace to those who are at different places on their journey. Uh, last Sunday, we began our series with this message, The God of the Center. I addressed how our concept of God and our understanding of the gospel will determine the sort of community and culture that exists in the church. At Grantham, we say Jesus shows us what God is like, and so we want to worship and know this Jesus and follow him with others in the church for the sake of the world, leading others, we say, to the God who looks like Jesus. Therefore, the more that we seek the God of the center, the more like him we become individually, of course, as well as a community, as a church. Today's message, the shriveled fruit of a bounded church, we're going to be looking at how the gospel challenges the bounded practice of community, which the Pharisees embodied, we saw that last week, and uh, Jesus, of course, rejected. And then next week, we'll look at the meager fruit of a fuzzy church, what it looks like when we raise all lines and boundaries, either to be non-judgmental or to unknowingly maybe align ourselves with the spirit of the age, and why that is equally a bad idea. And then the final message, I hope you'll be here for this, the deep well of a centered church. We'll see that there is a third way option of being a community that pursues Jesus together, allowing folks to be at different places, as I said, on that journey, and where we can discern whose life is aimed at Christ and hold grace and truth together as we live and worship in relationship with one another. And I believe, as I said before, this is a foundational series. So if you miss any of these messages, please, uh, please be sure to go and, and listen to that at our podcast and, and share that with others if the Spirit so moves you. I, I really think we need to hear this message today in all of our churches. For such a time as this, 
And I'm thankful for the clarity and the inspiration that Mark Baker offers in his book, which I mentioned last week. It's called Centered Set Church, Discipleship and Community Without Judgmentalism. If you're interested in, in reading it, I linked this book in last week's uh, email from the pastor. If you don't receive our weekly email, which includes everything going on in the church, please let us know by emailing the church office. Also, we have Baker's book out in the lobby as well as some other books related to this series. So be sure to check out the resources that we're putting out there for you. So I said last Sunday, Mark Baker expounds on three different ways of being community. And here are the images that help us grasp what each set looks like in practice. Take a look at that. The bounded, fuzzy, and centered church. The bounded church, remember, there are clear lines of who is in and who is out. And this church focuses on the boundaries. It's not that boundaries are bad, but the bounded church focuses on the boundaries. We'll talk more about that later. And then there's the fuzzy church. This is where we remove all lines and boundaries, and there's no clear distinction of who's following Jesus or not. And then the centered church discerns who belongs to the group by observing people's relationship with the center, Jesus Christ. The group includes all who are oriented toward the center. Their common direction brings unity. And there is space to struggle and fail because they believe that everyone is in process, moving closer to the center. But this morning, we're going to look at the bounded church specifically, and here's the full definition that we looked at last Sunday. A bounded church has a clear boundary line that is static and distinguishes Christians from non-Christians or true Christians from mediocre Christians. The line generally consists of a list of correct beliefs and certain visible behaviors. And could call them boundary markers, right? A bounded church has tendencies toward a sense of superiority and judgmentalism. It hinders transparency and it shames. Now think about the bounded church's impact on us. I'm guessing that probably a lot of us in the room have experienced a bounded church. Many of us grew up in a bounded church. But think about its impact on us as individuals. It It produces an elitist attitude about your church, right? The way you do things, maybe the way your denomination believes about things. It also, what I've seen, produces heresy hunters. You know, we've got like the doctrinal gatekeepers and we go after people uh, who don't believe the way that we do or or in our minds are out of bounds. Uh, And then other sort of judgmental attitudes. And maybe if you grew up in a bounded church like me, uh, you were somehow conditioned uh, as you got into the car and left church on a Sunday morning and you saw somebody mowing their yard, you thought, well, they're not a Christian. Or, they don't love Jesus. I, I remember even as a youth pastor just starting out, I served at a church that was next to a lake and, and every uh, Sunday I had to drive across several bridges and I would see people out there fishing. And I have to admit, there was, there was something in me when I rolled down my window and say, why aren't you in church? <laughs> or something like that, you know? You should be in church. Or maybe this uh, bounded church, you know, taught you other things. Like real Christians, 
they would never smoke a cigarette or they would never have a drink of alcohol or they would never listen to secular music or they wouldn't have tattoos. Now, a lot of these things, you know, nobody thinks anything about today. You know, there are plenty of Christians with tattoos. We don't think anything of it. But whatever the boundary markers were for a lot of folks that grew up brethren in Christ, there were boundary markers. You, you used to show them by the way that you dressed, women by what you wore on your head. So there are all kinds of ways in which we see this manifested in various traditions. So think about how that, that bounded church, um, we see that in community. We can give folks, think about this, we can give folks the clarity or the simplicity of mind they seek in a pagan, pluralistic, post-truth, uh, morally confused world through a bounded church, but at a terrible cost to ourselves and to our lost neighbors. And when it's done through this bounded set paradigm, that's what I want us to think about this morning. And his book, Baker says this, most people draw religious lines with sincere concerns and motivations, right? There's no, there's no need and no reason, because there's a lot of this that goes on today, to demonize people about this stuff, whether it's bounded or fuzzy church folks, which we're gonna look at in this series. I think that a lot of times the motivations, I agree with Baker, are sincere. Yet in a society that is saturated with status uh, seeking, a bounded group easily absorbs that mentality and their practices can become tools to grasp at superiority and status, all right? In this way, status, superiority, and privilege can become unconsciously woven into the fabric of bounded churches, Baker says. So can some good come out of bounded churches? Sure. You know, after I went through my 20s and then eventually got into my 30s, I wasn't so critical as I was in my 20s. I reflected back on the church I grew up in, which was a bit more bounded. I began to appreciate and see things, you know, later on that I didn't see before. I'm grateful for. I'm thankful for. There was good, solid biblical teaching there. I come to know Jesus there. So certainly there, there are good things that can come out of bounded churches, but most often than not, they promote a concept of God that at the end of the day doesn't look like Jesus, as I think you'll see today. I hope you'll see. Uh, they, they create modern-day Pharisees who bear shriveled fruit. And, and that's what I want us to reflect on this morning in this message, the shriveled fruit of a bounded church just a moment, we're going to be looking at various passages in Paul's letter to the Galatians. But before we do that, I want to invite us, I don't know how much you know about the book of Galatians. If you're if you've grown up in the church, you're somewhat familiar with it. I, I want to invite us to hear Paul challenging here with the Galatian Christians a bounded group paradigm that they have accepted that was introduced to these Gentile Christians by Jewish Christians who were undermining Paul's ministry and the gospel that he was proclaiming, a gospel of grace. As he envisioned a multicultural church, right, with people coming from all kinds of backgrounds to worship, to know, to love, together, the God who is at the center, Jesus Christ. 
And so what was the gospel that Paul preached? We should ask ourselves that question. Here's a definition that I've given us uh, back in the fall in the Gospel of the Kingdom series. We said the gospel story of how God has been at work in the world and is now redeeming it in Jesus Christ, who will one day return to bring the fullness of the kingdom of God. So we need to broaden some of us, our definition of good news or gospel. It's not simply the sinner's prayer or, you know, getting fire insurance so when you die one day you can go to heaven. Uh, This is much bigger and in fact that other version is a bit distorted. This is about a story of God's working in the world and of course God through Jesus bringing heaven to earth. More specifically, the good news is this, it's it's God beginning to reveal himself through the story of Israel in the Old Testament. Jesus is the promised Messiah we see in this story as it unfolds, and he fulfills the law and the prophets. Remember what he said in Matthew 5, 17, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. They're incomplete by themselves. It's not enough. And so Jesus will take it upon himself with his authority given to him by God to make some revisions and some additions. This is Jesus. This is the radical doctrine of the incarnation. Hallelujah. Jesus is God in the flesh and he died for our sins on the cross, the gospel tells us. His resurrection starts a new age that ends in victory. And we're saved by grace, Paul would say, through faith in Christ to be his good news people, formed in community through the church for the sake of the world. If you would, go ahead and open up your Bible now to the book of Galatians with that gospel understanding in mind. Go ahead and flip open to Galatians chapter 1. We'll begin there in just a moment. And you'll see we'll be hopping around real quickly through this book. We don't have time to go verse by verse through every chapter. Primarily, we're going to look at chapters 1 through 4. We'll probably dip into chapter 5 and 6 next Sunday. As you flip there, listen to some of the context. This is the first letter written by Paul, probably around 49 AD. We think that this, scholars think, a lot, most scholars think that this is the first book written in the New Testament. And it's kind of a fiery letter from the Apostle Paul to churches that he planted in the region of Galatia, which is today modern uh, southern Turkey. At this point, there's just as many Gentiles as Jews in the Jewish movement, and it's prompting a lot of debate. You can think about for Orthodox Jews, what their their theology, what their worldview was like. Now think about what the worldview of many Gentiles and pagans are like, and they're coming into the church, not with the same story, not with the same background, and they're bringing all kinds of different ideas into the church. Lots of customs, traditions, practices. And so there's lots of debate and we can see some of this debate happening in Acts chapter 15. I referenced that in your bulletin this morning. If you have time, maybe later today or this evening, go and read that that council there in Jerusalem. Basically, the question that they're dealing with is this. What must Gentiles do to be saved and to be included in the church? Some said that they they must embrace the external Jewish boundary markers to be legit. That is that all the males must be circumcised. You can imagine the hurdle that that would present for pagan males wanting to come to Jesus. 
Uh, eating kosher was a part of that. Sorry, you can't have bacon. Mm, what would the world be with uh, bacon? Follow the law, observe the Sabbath and all of its many rules. So things like that. Those were the external outward boundary markers that showed people that you were a follower of Yahweh. And so the question they were asking was, do the Gentiles need to do any of this? Because the Apostle Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles, wasn't teaching any of that. They said Christ is at the center and it's, a, and it's a gospel that we're saved by grace through faith. All may come who want to come. Jesus meets you where you are. Right? This is what Paul is teaching. It's he will say to the Galatians, the death and resurrection of Jesus has launched a new age and a new creation. So Paul warned them about going backwards, back to the old age, taking on a bounded set approach, thus adding to the gospel and obstacles for Gentiles who are attracted to Jesus and pursuing him as the center of the church. And, and let's not mistake for any second here when we talk about these Jewish agitators, as Paul will call them, that we're somehow being anti-Semitic. I just want to throw that in there. Uh, because the bounded set is embraced by lots of people today, right? Even Gentile Christians. So he initially received the approval of the Jerusalem church. If you go back and look at Acts and also, or he's going to mention this at the beginning of the book of Galatians, uh, though he didn't ask for their approval and didn't feel that he needed their approval, they, he still had their approval. But then later there's some flip-flopping to pressure from the boundary, we'll call them boundary marker activists. We see this one instance where Peter goes to the church of Antioch, which is sort of the central hub of Gentile Christianity. And at first, he's having table fellowship with them. You remember last week, I think we said how uh, intimate table fellowship is, right? You, you, you eat with people, you're associating yourself with those people. And so, Peter was doing that with these Gentile Christians who weren't obeying any of the Jewish and recognizing any of the Jewish boundary markers. But when the Jewish agitators, Paul says, the, these activists, these, these law-abiding, line-drawing activists show up, what does Peter do? He backs away from the table and doesn't associate with them. Mm. Paul is not going to like that one bit. Furthermore, these agitators are going around accusing Paul of bungling the gospel. This is their story, right? The Apostle Paul is getting the gospel wrong. After all, he didn't walk with Jesus like we did. And so they tell the Galatian Christians that they must adhere to the law and observe the boundaries if they want to be true disciples. And we don't have the letter, like a lot of the letters written in the New Testament, we're only listening to one side of the phone conversation. But we can pretty much guess the kinds of things that Paul was hearing. He received a report about the tensions and divisions among the Galatians caused by these Jewish agitators. And so the book of Galatians is his response. Let's look at some of the uh, passages I have on the screen there. Galatians, we'll start with Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 12. Again, later today, I encourage you to read this whole thing. It won't take you very long, and you go read Acts 15 as well. But this is, this is where we're going to start. Galatians 1, verse 6, Paul says, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation here, I am shocked 
that you are turning away so soon from God who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You are following a different way that pretends to be the good news, but it is not the good news at all. You're being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. Now, look at this. Paul says, let God's curse fall on anyone, including us, or even an angel from heaven who preaches a different kind of good news than the one that we preached to you. You can see Paul's a little fired up. I say again what we have said before. If anyone preaches any other good news than the one you welcomed, let that person be cursed. Obviously, obviously, Paul says, I'm not trying to win the approval of people here, but of God, right? Because talking to folks this way, he kind of runs the risk of losing their friendship or severing the relationship. And of course, the, the message that he's proclaiming, which is an abounded set sort of message, is not the way of the world. So Paul knows. He understands the risk that he's taking by proclaiming this gospel, yet he does. He said, if pleasing people were my goal, I would not be Christ's servant. Now look at chapter 2, verse 19 through 21. Just to get a feel of the letter here. Chapter 2, verse 19 through 21. Paul is going to say here uh, why the law can't get us where God wants us to be. Verse 19, for when I tried to keep the law, now remember he was a Pharisee and he was a good one, he will tell us. When I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might live for God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. I'm not trying to do this in my own strength, Paul is saying, but it is Christ living in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God. Folks, this is a totally different way to holiness. The message isn't, uh, you know, you're a sinner, God is holy, try harder, right? Or something like this. Paul is going to tell us through this letter that there's another way to become like Jesus than approaching him through the law, than approaching him through this bounded set. I did not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Oh, foolish Galatians. Who has cast an evil spell on you? The NIV says, who has bewitched you? Who's deceived you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. Paul's saying it is as simple as that. How foolish now can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? You know, one of my experiences growing up in a bounded church was there was a lot of grace initially. So when they, when they preached the message of God's grace, it was usually, now no one would ever say this or admit this, but the, what you see displayed in practice was a lot of grace up front when you first come to Jesus, say the prayer, and come into the church. A lot of grace up front. But after that, not so much. 
And this is the kind of behavior that Paul is condemning. God's grace is good enough for us in the beginning and it's good enough every single day after that. Amen and hallelujah. Look at chapter three, verse 19 through 29. Why then was the law given? What was the purpose of the law? Paul's gonna tell us right here. It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. This is not Grogu, this is Jesus, just so you Mandalorian fans know that. God gave his law through angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and the people. Look at verse 21. Is there a conflict then between God's law and God's promises? Absolutely not. If the law could give us new life, Paul's saying if the law was good enough, we could be made right with God by obeying it. Now, if anybody knows this, it's Paul. And he used to be obsessed with the law. He was a Pharisee. So listen to him. He says, but the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin, so we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ, not obeying the law. Verse 23, before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. You can think about the, the law having two roles here, one positive and one negative. I think this is what Paul is saying. The positive one is that the law acted like a strict school teacher, keeping us in line until the Messiah came. Right? That's what God's law begins to do. It begins to limit them. It puts boundaries on them so that they know uh, how to follow him and start to pursue God and get to know God in his heart. The negative aspect of the law is that it magnifies, I hear Paul saying this, it magnifies our sin, right? We are all sinners. We're all enslaved to sin. And the only way out of that is a savior. And none of us are it. No self-help, no happy thoughts, right? It's only through the Messiah, Jesus. Verse 24, let me put it another way, Paul says, the law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. And this is what he means about all of the prophets, all the law and the prophets hang on two commands. What were they? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And what? Love your neighbor as yourself. You do that fully, then you will get and, and be able to capture the heart of the Old Testament law. This is the message of Jesus, and it's the message of Paul. Now, some of us are familiar with these next two verses. Listen, he says, for you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That would be Jew and Gentiles. Without the boundary markers. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile. You can hear Paul saying this. So stop trying to draw these artificial lines. They shouldn't exist. They don't exist in Christ. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. I, I recently purchased uh, an African-American New Testament commentary called True to Our Native Land. 
And uh, Brad Paxton, a scholar in that, says, Paul pleads here for the eradication of dominance in Galatians 3.28, but not the erasure of difference. I think our culture needs to hear that. Look at chapter 4. Chapter 4, last bits here. Chapter 4, verse 8 and 9. Before you you Gentiles knew God, you were slaves to so-called gods that do not even exist. Now, we have our own gods today. We We don't have to have statues in our house, you know. We have our own idols. So now that you know God, or should I say now that God knows you, why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to the weak and useless spiritual principles of the world? This whole bounded set idea. And then lastly, look what he says in verse 17 through 20. Those false teachers who are so eager to win your favor, and boy, they have a following today, don't they? Their intentions, though, they're not good. Look underneath, Paul would tell us. They are trying to shut you off from me so that you'll pay attention only to them. If someone is eager to do good things for you, that's all right, but let them do it all the time, not just when I'm with you. Oh, my dear children. You can hear that sort of paternal and maternal uh, relationship Paul feels he has with these new believers. I feel as if I'm going through labor pains for you again. And they will continue until Christ is fully developed in your lives. I wish I were with you right now so I could change my tone. But at this distance, I don't know how else to help you but to speak this way. Wow, you can hear, can't you, Paul's extreme frustration and his concern for what this other gospel and a focus of old, on old covenant boundary markers, which were pre-Messianic age, were tribal in nature, would do to the Galatian churches. For Paul knew as a former Pharisee that this teaching and practice would undermine the gospel of grace and lead to various forms of bondage and certainly shriveled fruit. And here's what this bounded thinking and practice leads to and the sort of community that it creates. Maybe some of these are familiar to you if you've experienced the bounded church. The shriveled fruit of a bounded church promotes a portrait of God as a tyrannical overlord. It's like if, if God were Darth Vader and he's waiting for you to step out of line at any minute so he can force choke you, you know. I really think that some of us, if we're honest, have a concept of God or something similar to that. As we said last week, our our concept and portrait of God and the the paradigm of church which we've experienced can often be reinforcing. Is it the chicken or the egg? Well, they go together. The shriveled fruit of a bounded church, it creates an atmosphere and culture of exclusion, who is in and out, an us versus them mentality. It breeds legalism, superiority, elitism, and judgmentalism. It trains us to look out our window and say, why aren't you in church? (laughs) It operates by conditional love, not unconditional love, conditional love and acceptance. It uses fear and shame, you see, to try to motivate people to change. But Paul is saying that's not the way. 
That's not the way. It creates a culture. Look at this one. That lacks transparency. We don't want to be transparent when we live in a bounded set church because we don't want people to see those things. They might judge us. They might love us differently. But folks, not at Grantham Church. Amen. We want to pursue Christ who is the center together, giving grace to one another, knowing folks are going to stumble and fall. Would you think you're never going to sin again? I love that. That line that Jesus in the chosen one of those episodes. Would you think you were never going to sin again? I just want your heart. Just give me that. So it creates a culture that lacks transparency. And because of that, we lack vulnerability when we're in a bounded community. Then we can't confess. Then the scripture, the scripture says, well, then we can't be healed. Then we can't grow together when there's a lack of that honesty, right? It talks a lot, I said, about God's grace, but it actually lives, works, righteousness. It really is about what you do. It really is about those boundary markers in a bounded church. And then lastly, we see that life changes tend to be superficial because they're motivated by fear of exclusion and pressure to conform. And folks, that's not the way in which Jesus wants us to come to transformation. Which is why in Galatians chapter 5, Paul says we should learn to use the grace and freedom that we've been given in Christ to live by the Spirit. The Spirit should motivate us to change. The Spirit is what guides us to change. Jesus told his disciples, the Spirit will remind you of the things that I've said and how you are to live, not the law. With the law comes enslavement. With the law comes bondage. But with the Spirit comes freedom. And Paul will say in Galatians chapter 5, and we don't use that freedom just to go on sinning and to do whatever, as the fuzzy church will see, will do. But more on that next week. No, instead, if we're going to bear the fruit of the Spirit and express our faith in love, we must live by the Spirit. As we'll see more next week, boundaries can be good things, but the bounded church twists and misuses them in order to exclude and relies upon laws and line drawing to motivate right living and what we should call behavioral modification. But like Jesus, Paul is saying there is a better way. Amen. There's a better way. Once again, Baker writes this as you look at those images. Listen to this. He says, bounded churches may state that Christ is at the center, but the paradigm itself acts like a magnet and it pulls people to turn and focus on the boundary line that defines the group and provides security. At the other end of the spectrum, a fuzzy church might talk about the centrality of Jesus Christ, but it does not actually have a center. The focus is still on boundary lines, but in this case, their identity is defined by not having any boundary lines. In a centered church, our security and identity reside in our relationship to the center. Like, notice the ones that are pointed to the cross. Therefore, the paradigm itself in the centered church is like a magnet, pulls our focus to the center, which is Jesus Christ. And so when we see people fail, or when I fail, or we all struggle and, or as we're stumbling forward in Jesus, we say, that's okay. There's grace for me, there's grace for you, and we point each other to Jesus. Keep following Jesus. This is what the centered church is about. Brothers and sisters, listen, despite the good that might come 
from a bounded approach. Jesus rejected this mindset of the Pharisees in his own ministry. And as we've heard from the Apostle Paul this morning in the book of Galatians, it is slavery. It is going backwards. It breeds all manner of shriveled fruit as it reflects a tribalistic mentality born of the flesh, not of the spirit. And I submit to you that you have all kinds of bounded forces at work, from politics to theology. What will you do with it, my friends? Will you be the kind of follower of Jesus that Paul is calling us to be or not? Because the bounded way fails to trust in the way that calls us to meet people where they are and journey together toward the God of the center, the God who looks like Jesus. Therefore, let us this morning say no to the bounded group. Let us say no to the bounded church so that we might say yes to the gospel, which is best known, experienced, and embodied, as we'll see in the centered church. In closing, here are two questions for reflection and response. And I trust that the Spirit is speaking to your heart and and connecting, helping you to connect some dots to things going on in your life or maybe in our community. Here are two questions to help us respond in faith. Number one, and I recognize for some of you who've grown up in a bounded church, some of the stuff we've heard this morning could be triggering, right? Or, or hard for you to hear as it brings back some really hurtful memories and pain. My first question is, is about that. Have you experienced a bounded church before? Is there hurt you need to name and ask God to heal you? Say, Lord, help me. Because of this experience, I have a concept of you. I have a concept of the church that I believe deep down the Spirit is telling me this morning is not accurate. Would you help, un- help me undo what has been done? Folks, I believe the Spirit can do that. Exchange that portrait of God that looks like the force-choking Lord Vader for the one that looks like the Lord Jesus. Number two, be honest. Is there any bounded thinking in you that distorts your view of God and leads to fear, judgmentalism, and the exclusion of others? And what about in our church? You take a moment, listen to the Spirit, to what he's saying to us together. Let me give you a moment to do that. Lord, some of us know that that bounded set has such a hold 
on us and a, and, a, and a pull upon us because we feel that in it we can find safety and security. Who's in, who's out, who's right, who's wrong. But Lord, we sense this morning you're calling us to a different way, not a fuzzy way, but the way of doing community where you are at the center and we are all following you together in grace. Oh God, give us a picture of that. Set us free this morning. Set us free from the bounded ways that are in us and that are in our fellowship. It's in Christ's name that we pray.